Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. What do you think about life life in our mid fifties? What, what, what's, how's it been for you? Uh, you know, it's, it's weird as we go through these stages, isn't it? Like health wise, yeah. physically, how's your fifties so far? So far it's been, uh, it's been great. I have younger kids for most mid 50 year olds. So I have a, a 17 year old and a 13 year old about to turn 14. So it keeps us young and active. And, uh, you know, it's definitely physically you start, uh, feeling the aches and pains and not, not, you know, being not so flexible and so forth. So you just have to work at it and, and keep fit <laughs> as right. much as you can. So you got two teenagers at home. Yeah. That uh, 17 mm-hmm. and 14. Yeah. That'll keep you busy. But boys, girls, one of each, what do you got? One of each. So my 17 year old daughter is a junior in high school and my son is in eighth grade. Any, uh, anything exciting yet? Like any calls from the sheriff, sheriff's office, yeah. like 2, 2 a.m. knocks on the door. Anything good? Anything? Fun knock on there? wood. Knock on wood. They're, they're both uh, amazing kids. I have no complaints. They're, they're really good, good kids. Uh, good for you. Teenagers usually sometimes, sometimes they can be tough. It, you know, it depends. Of course, your, your eighth grader, your eighth grader just getting started. He might, he might. Yeah. <laughs> he's a good kid though. He's, he's a sweet boy. Uh, basketball is his passion. He's a great student, works at it really hard. And, uh, you know, just we're, we're very blessed. Well, you, uh, I guess he know he knows you got your master's at North Carolina, right? So, I mean, yes. you're, you're, you're probably a basketball family kind of a little bit, I'm guessing. We've become a basketball family. We, we've always been a college football family. Uh, my wife and I both went to Clemson. I saw that. I saw you in Clemson. Oh, so you, that's where you met your wife? Yes. What was yes. it? Were you at like a, like a frat party or something? You saw her across the room and you're like, we actually were just friends. We were friends in the, in the same big friend group. And then about how many years later, probably about 20 some years later, we reconnected. We were both in New York City and, wow. uh, and the rest is history. So we we didn't date in college, but we started dating once we reconnected. Interesting. Were either one of you married before? Um, no. No. And no kids. 20 years later. So you're 20 years later. Hell, you graduated college. 21. What you? You were like 40 when you got married. I was 39. Wow. All right. Well, yeah. you know, that's, so that's why you got teenagers in your, in your mid fifties, right? There you go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're right about the, the physical part. For me, it's the physical that I notice the most, like mentally and all that. I'm sorry. That's all right. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, we we get sometimes we get dogs uh, visiting here on the Rider Flex show. They want to they want to speak up. 
and want to tell us what's going on. Uh, they gotta, they gotta let us know when somebody's at the door. That was not expected. I'm sorry. That's okay. Now, good. Hey, good thing you weren't in shorts, right? Have you seen that video right. of the guy that's <laughs> in the suit top and he stands out? He's good. <laughs> By the way, if you ever, if you call me, uh, I mean, most of the time I'm in a Rider Flex shirt, but most of the time I'm in shorts, sweatpants, whatever. Yes. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So you, um, uh, you met your wife like, like, uh, 20 years later. Wow. That's a pretty cool story. Um, but I want to know real quick, your, your parents growing up, did you have siblings and what your mom and dad do? I want to know some early stuff there. Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm the youngest of four and okay. we're all very close in age, a very close family. My uh, parents, um, we grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, my father is originally from West Virginia, was the first of his uh, generation in the family to go to college at Michigan State. And nice. uh, he met my mother in Michigan and they got married after he well, no, before he started college, uh, they were married and started a family. And then he Worked his way through college and got a degree. And then after that, he took a job with Ford Motor Company, which moved him to Ohio. And he worked there for, I don't know, 30, 35 years and retired about 20 years ago, something like that. And uh, they're both still in Ohio doing well. And oh, my, okay. yep, my sisters and their families are in Ohio. And my brother splits his time between Delaware and South Carolina. Any family left in West Virginia or no? Yes, cousins and aunts and uncles and, and so forth on, on my father's side. Yes. Okay. My father is first generation Mexican American. Ah, okay. All right. Very good. Do you speak any Spanish? I try. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when you went uh, to college, why'd you go to Clemson? How did that happen? I went to Clemson. My brother was a Duke at the time. Oh, and, wow. Uh, wow. Yes. And his best friend and a, and a family friends of ours was at Clemson. And I knew I was going into engineering. So I was looking at different colleges, Purdue, Michigan, Ohio State and uh, Clemson. And uh, I went down to visit my brother's family friend for a football game weekend. And after that, I was, that was it. There was, there that was, was no it. choice. So as soon as I as soon as I my father used to always come home for lunch and he retrieved the mail one day and it was from Clemson and he came to the high school to to get me out of class so that he could share the letter with me. Is that right? That's pretty yeah. cool. That's yeah. pretty cool. I mean, that's a great story. Your dad coming from West Virginia. He's the first guy to go to school and then he sends one son to, to Duke, one son to Clemson. That's how about the other two siblings? They both went to college, too. They did. My oldest sister went to Bowling Green in Ohio, and my uh, sister that's one year older than me went to University of Kentucky. Wow, your parents must be super proud, right? And they're still alive and still doing good. Doing well. Parents are, <clears throat> are very proud. I'm proud of them as well. Uh, my dad is, is uh, my idol. He came from nothing and uh, just made it, and his goal was to make sure he sent us all through college, so he reached that. That is a pretty cool story. Okay, so you go to Clemson. Uh, you you what were you, you going to be an engineer? Did you know what you wanted to do? Talk to me about that. Well, I knew that the engineering curriculum was one that I could do. I was very good in math and science and so okay. forth. And right. I had enough insight from my brother. He also was in engineering that it really was a, a good foundation, right. a good degree to have to to uh, really go anywhere with. So. 
no, I didn't really have aspiration to being a nuts and bolts engineer, but I really, I did enjoy the curriculum. I, I liked the learning and uh, I knew that I wanted to be in technology. You knew you wanted to be in tech and yeah. early on, and here's something good for the listeners, especially for the younger listeners and aspiring entrepreneurs. You were heavily involved, right? In college, you were in activities, you were in student government, you were this, I mean, you were, you were in leadership slash uh, groups and organizations way early on, which um, I have found being a recruiter for a living, because that's what we, that's what we do for in our day job is uh, as a recruiting firm at Riderflex. Anytime I see people that were super heavily involved like that in organizations, you know, at a young age in college, they usually go on to be in some sort of leadership role later on. It serves them really well. You learn a lot of people skills, a lot of different things during that time. Yeah, uh, I saw you. Okay, so you get out of school, and then what happens? Uh, you get your you get your first job with uh, Dupont, not Dupont. Who who'd you go to work for? Dupont. 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 So I actually started with Dupont as a student in a co op program. At okay. So right. I worked for them for um, a total of about a year and a half, but four okay. different semesters I worked for Dupont, and uh, it was you know it, it was pretty much understood that I would take a job with them after graduation, which I did. Mm. Of course. And, yeah. They're uh, like, they're like, Hey man, we're investing in you. You need to. <laughs> and it, it, what a great company it was. And still, I'm sure it still is today, but uh, they just, it was such a, a nurturing environment. Um, people really took care of me and uh, they recruited me into a management training program okay. in at headquarters in Delaware, where I spent the first um, spent four and a half years after finishing college and uh, I worked in three different positions. The first position was in technology. So I was in the design group for uh, uh, new, new manufacturing plants, which, okay. which was the worst job in the world because I had no interest in that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was just, I knew that it was a, a two-year assignment and I knew the next assignment would be something a little bit more down the line of what I was aspiring to get into. And that was more on the business side. Okay. So I really, the, the, I think that the most impactful position that I was given at DuPont was that second job. And that was as a corporate recruiter. So, uh, you know, yes. my life, you, you, you know, my life, you know, my daily routine. Yes. Yes. So I was the guy on, that went to, I was the guy on campus that would interview the engineering students for, uh, for two, for two um, recruiting years. And what a fantastic uh, experience. It, it got me back to campus I was around young people, learning about their aspirations, helping placing the top candidates in different businesses in DuPont. And I, you know, it was a great networking job for me within DuPont. Got to know a lot of the different managers of the different businesses. And uh, it really was the inspiration for for going back to school to, to get my MBA. Oh, oh really? That's okay. Because I, I saw that little gap there. You had a little gap and then you you went back to get your MBA. Okay. All right. Yes. You, all right. That's interesting. See, you go back, you're on campus, you're around the students, you're, you're there doing recruiting. You're like, ah, hmm, man, I want to go back. Okay. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I wondered, I wondered how that happened. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then what happens? GE recruits you away or what happened? Yeah. So when I was at, when I was in graduate school first, um, I was assigned to Conoco for the summer internship and Conoco at that time was, was owned by DuPont. So they placed me in London, believe it or not, of all places, which was, again, one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had to, to leave cool. the country. 
And then my second year of graduate school, I spent most of that year in Belgium at a university called Leuven. Great experience. Mm -hmm. Came back and graduated. And I actually did take a job with DuPont again um, in Boston. And soon thereafter, several months after that, I was recruited by an executive recruiter for a position with GE Plastics in Mm -hmm. California. Mm. And it was a... It was a job that I couldn't turn down. And even my management and my mentors at DuPont were, I had been with DuPont this entire time and and they were just so good to me. And it was probably one of the hardest discussions I had to have was when I told them I was leaving. But my management and my mentors looked at me and said, we're disappointed, but if, if I were in your shoes, I would do exactly the same thing you're doing. You're probably still connected to some of those guys today, right? Probably. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. That's so important for the listeners. Really just you maintain, you get these relationships, you build, you build these things over time. It's very important to water and nurture them and keep them. You never know. You never know when you might need to call that phone number for something. (laughs) And early on, you know, early on in anyone's career, you're not going to love every job that you're given. And uh, you you have to really just embrace it, learn everything you can from it, meet the people, establish a network, work hard. And then that sets you up for, for really honing down what you really want to do and be able to put yourself in the position to get those, those jobs that you really want to. Great advice. I would add to that, that you're also not going to love every boss that you have along the way either. They're not all going to be super wonderful, but usually there's little nuggets that you can learn from each one, right? Even the ones you don't necessarily like, there's two or three nuggets that you take away from like, okay, this person's good at that, good at this. And you kind of, you grab the Absolutely. little nuggets as you move along, you put them in your basket, you know? Um, and I would also advise listeners, you know, if you do get an asshole boss along the way, it's probably not a good idea to blow up the bridge because no, you never know that person never burn might, a bridge. No, never. Just don't never. do it. I never, I did it a few times when I was in my twenties, you know, until I got, cause I was super cocky and, <laughs> Uh, but well, I, I mean, learned. that's one of the yeah. one of the key pieces of advice I, I do give young people is that, you know, a person or a company or, or someone that you're you have some perhaps some conflict with or or something. Mm-hmm. You have to understand that that person could be your future customer, could be your that's future right. neighbor, could be your yes. future employer, could be your, um, you know, you never know. Um, yes who that person knows. <laughs> so you, you have to sort of navigate through that and uh, make the best of it and um, stay positive. Great advice, David. Uh, let me just add a quick story in for that before we get into your VC stuff. Um, as a recruiting firm uh, here at RiderFlex, uh, you know, we're always working to land additional contracts. We had spent about a month working on this company, I won't mention the company, uh, getting to know some people and we were doing presentations. We were trying to land some long-term, long, long-term recruiting with them. Well, we finally made it up to uh, the executive team where we had to meet the executives and kind of do our final pitch to get them to sign off on us. And they walk in, there's three of them. And one of the, one of the guys that walks in is somebody that I knew from my past that I that had not done a very good job with. <laughs> and he saw me and I saw him. I looked over at my co-founder and I said, this meeting's over. We might as well just go yeah. now because we're not going to get this gig. <laughs> so yeah, you're totally right. You never know. 
Um, okay, so moving along, did you know, did you have aspirations to be a founder or a startup guy or a VC? Or how did it happen when you when you moved the transition into supply mm-hmm. base? Kind of walk me through that. Go ahead. Yes, yes. Um, so GE, again, was an amazing experience. I had great management. In fact, Jeff Immel, too, that was just now the former CEO, was ahead of GE Plastics at that time. And I think my boss, I was two levels, two or three levels below him, a great person, um, amazing manager. And uh, I did very well in that position. I think part of it was seeing the corporate ladder that was really great. There were fantastic opportunities within GE, but um, from from a personality standpoint, I was more interested in, at that point in my career, doing something really that I was passionate about or interested in. Okay. And um, also, I was in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. in San Francisco. So there, there is this, there's yeah. something in the air out there. Yes. And <laughs> <laughs> after three and a half years in a commercial um, position at, at GE, um, myself and two other colleagues who worked there as well, started brainstorming on a weekly basis about ideas, things that we might want to venture out and do. And then we came up with the idea for supply base. And I was the first one to leave. I was like, I'm I'm leaving, I'm going. So we we staged it where I left first. And then a few months later, the other co-founder left. And then a few months after that, the other co-founder left. You guys, you you, you three bootstrapped it together? Just you just we put cash. some initial capital in. We bootstrapped it. We raised some a small amount of capital from friends and family, uh-huh. and uh, we suffered through that bootstrapping for over two years. It was very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You really, yeah, I'm guessing you weren't you weren't taking a salary those two years. I'm guessing no, no. Yeah, yeah. I spent every <laughs> dime. I every savings I had. My credit cards were maxed. Everything, but uh, we just we stuck through it. And when we got our first round of venture venture funding, we had brought in a fourth partner and he was really instrumental in helping us get to that point. It was hallelujah. And uh, <laughs> I tell you what, I paid off those credit cards before I think I ate dinner. Um, <laughs> and uh, and after that, uh, we raised another round of funding and then the company was acquired. So our hard work and dedication and, and pain really paid off. Uh, successful exit, uh, made some money yes. on the deal. Okay. We did. We did. Not, we, we, okay. we, right. we did. We, we had a very successful exit. We were, um, the company that acquired us what acquired another public company at the same time that they acquired us. We were like, mm-hmm. it was a big announcement for the other company being acquired. And then and the last part of the of release was, Oh, by the way, we also acquired supply base. But um, it was a merger at that time. And uh, but for us, it was more than we ever expected to get out of that that experience. And it really set us up, you know, with when you have some capital, it it, yeah, it's money, but it it gives you freedom to really then do what you want to do next. And that's really the value that it brought to us. And uh, and I look at it, you know, with no regrets, of course, and um, just a fantastic learning experience. So that money is what you use to, to enter into being to enter into the VC world yourself, basically. Yeah, in, in essence. So so at that point, after we were acquired, I had some colleagues from from graduate school 
okay. who had started a venture capital fund in the, in the East Coast. Okay. Uh, and based out of Philadelphia, they had uh, opened offices in DC and London, and they were looking for somebody to be on the ground in New York. Mm. And I also was, after seven years in California, I was ready to come back East. Really? Um, okay. Yeah, I was. Um, closer to family, um, re- to re-engage with most of most of my friends historically, you know, are East Coast based because that's where I grew up and so forth. So I was actually serendipitously looking to relocate to New York City for the job that I was in with the acquired company. And oh. I got this call from from uh, my my uh, classmate, Kathy, and she re- presented the opportunity to me. And I said, OK, when do I uh, meet with you all? So <laughs> New York and met and uh, it was the right it was the right thing to do. You know, when, when you're a very small company and you get swallowed up by a big public company, there's it's really you, you don't really know what the opportunities are going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing against that. All the, the I2 Technologies who acquired us, they were an amazing organization. This was just an opportunity also that enabled me to step over to the investor side. Yeah. So, and, which, and which firm was that? It was called Catalyst with a K, Catalyst Venture Partners. Okay. And uh, they had launched the fund in 2000 when I, okay. when I joined shortly thereafter. And um, they were um, investing mainly in media technologies, which was a new sector for me. So, uh, you know, I had a lot of learning to do and, and uh, it was a great learning experience to, to be on the investor side. And um, we had a, a nice couple of years of operation. What happened after 9-11 was that the VC world pretty much shut down in New York. So they, try, they uh, reorganized a bit. Um, they actually sent me over to London for a year. In uh, 2002, yes, and uh, we had some investments and some advisory clients in London. So I went over to manage those. Now when I ask back, you, I want to mm-hmm. ask you right there now. Did you meet your Did you meet your then wife when you were in New York before you went to London, and when you or did you Did you guys get together when you came back from London? I'm just curious what the time before. Line is before. Okay. Okay. So then you about yeah. the time you're building a relationship with her, you're like, hey, I got to go to London, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she had just moved to New York and I was in process of going to London. Um, uh, I was back and forth. And then when I came back is really when we we started, uh, when we got together. That's almost a scene out of the, the Christmas movie Family Man. where he's, <laughs> he's going to the airport to go and she's like, don't, don't go. If you go uh, yeah. But it worked out. She didn't go with you, but it worked out. No, she did not. She was, uh, it worked out well. It worked out really great. Okay. And she... Okay she loved being in New York and we got married and stayed in New York for 10 years. Okay, cool. You came back. um, uh, And then that, how did you end up moving? You moved on to something else, a couple of other things, maybe before good growth, I think. Yes. Yes. So after catalyst, I went out on my own and did a lot of advisory consulting work with, with startups. Right. I helped a few few people who had funding start their businesses. I did okay. angel investing myself. And then when when the plans were to move to back to South Carolina, where a lot of our family and my wife's family was your wife's family from there. Okay. Yes. And we also had um, we purchased a second home in Charleston. Uh-huh. Um, during that period. So we were back and forth and getting to know the city well, and it was the right place for us to go to. So we, 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 we um, re- relocated to Charleston 
And uh, it was an open, it was an open slate for me because I had no, um, yeah, I was, I was on my own uh, doing freelance work. And I really, uh, my goal was to um, establish a venture capital ecosystem here in, in Charleston. Oh, okay. What was your wife doing at the time? My wife has always worked with her family business. Oh, they, they have commercial real estate um, properties and, and manage those. So she's always been, been involved. Okay. In that. All right. All right. So then what happens? You meet uh, the folks at Good Growth. Did you know them from your past or how'd you meet them? Yeah. So what happened then when I moved to Charleston, I actually started my first fund called Capital A Partners. Mm. We call it Cap A. And my partner in that firm was in New York. So, nice. and, and uh, Tanya Marvin Horowitz and Tanya and I, started Cap A. We raised a small fund just to get started. And while we were raising that fund, Tanya and her husband moved to Stockholm. That's why, and, uh, sweet, that's why it says, that's why it says Stockholm on, on your, I guess. Yes, right? correct. So we sort of had to pivot our plan, which actually turned out to be an amazing thing. We started investing in early stage companies here in the Southeast, but also in the Nordics. And, um, after that, after we deployed that fund, we were uh, making plans to raise our, uh, uh, you know, an, another fund. Okay. And she and I were um, offered a position with a Nordic-based VC fund that saw us that really wanted to have um, somebody. They were in Finland. They wanted to have more exposure outside of just Finland. Mm. And so they brought us on into that fund. And at that time, um I really was at a, at a position in a situation where I felt that, you know, am I going to really be that valuable to a Nordic based fund? That's only going to be investing in the Nordics. Mm. Yeah. And I thought to myself, probably not, but, but let's, let's just go with this and, and see how it goes. And, and then at that time, the two co-founders of good growth capital approached me. Did you know and, them from your past? I knew one of the founders, yes, because she was here in Charleston. We were both parents at my daughter's school, and I had got to know Amy. Um, Amy so I knew okay. her for a few years. Right. Yes. And um, Amy approached me and said she was putting a team together, and she knew that I was one of the few people with venture capital experience in, in South Carolina. And uh, it was the right transition. So what happened was my former partner, Tanya, stayed with Butterfly Ventures, who she's still with today doing a fantastic work there, doing fantastic okay. investing in the Nordics. And I joined Good Growth. So that was in um, 20, 2017. Oh. And um, yes. Right. And so they assembled a really great team. Um, the, the two co-founders, Amy and Maureen, had worked together for 20 years. Amy was here now in Charleston. She, she had moved from um, the Northeast down here. Uh, Maureen, who is still in Boston, was based in Boston. And then they brought in also um, John Osborne, who's one of my partners here. John was also very instrumental in getting the ecosystem developed here in Charleston. He started the uh, accelerator called the Harbor Entrepreneurship Center that is still in operation. One of the oldest uh, standing accelerator and, and entrepreneurship programs in the Southeast. And we then we brought in a fifth partner, Carolyn Lasala, who was a former executive at Apple Computer, and she had also relocated to Charleston. So this was a dream team. Yeah, that was being put together. Very so nice. I I, I, I joined forces with them, and and now here we are, um, five six years later, and we are about to close on one of the largest, uh, very early stage um, 
VC funds in the Southeast. Very nice. And uh, by the way, for the listeners, goodgrowthvc.com, right? Goodgrowthvc.com. Goodgrowthvc.com. Yes. And the por- the portfolio of companies you've invested in is on there. I looked through them this morning. Yeah, impressive. Um, what is your is your functional role to um, decide what to invest in or to raise the capital or both? I'm just curious. Well, all of us do all of that, but okay. we do okay. have sort we do have silos that we um, do sort of oversee. I, from the beginning, because I had gone through the legal and financial formation of the fund before, I was brought in to to really, I managed that part of the business. So uh, I did all the legal work and not, I mean, with a law firm, but legal and yeah. financial work to manage the formation and operation of the fund. So mm. more like fund administration. But of course, you know, I had to do, we, we, we all, we all source deals. We all serve on boards, we do due diligence, we fundraise, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But, um, but that was my main role in the beginning. And now that we've scaled, we've passed over those responsibilities to a fund administration firm that we outsource to, which has been a godsend. Oh, and uh, yes, <laughs> so now I'm able to do the work that I really enjoy. And that is working with entrepreneurs more closely, um, digging into technologies and, uh, So if you had to rank, if you had to rank uh, your passion, you enjoy talking to the founders of a startup company and helping them get organized and going more than you enjoy asking a billionaire to write a check. (laughs) I tell you what, fundraising is, 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 uh, it it takes a unique animal to enjoy it. It's, (laughs) it's, it's, it's the, it's the must do as a venture capitalist, but it, it is um, rewarding. I mean, we have assembled an amazing group of investors into our fund from across the United States, several, in fact, several in Asia, several in Europe. It ranges from individuals to family offices, to institutions, to university endowments, nice. foundations, corporates. Uh, it's been a really fantastic experience. As hard as it is, it's been a really amazing experience. I uh, know from my own experience and from my own advisory board members and equity holders here at Riderflex that dealing sometimes with family offices can be uh, interesting. <laughs> it's been it's been enlightening. The, the actually family offices are especially nowadays, very, very active in, in yep. technology investing, yep. especially in the areas that we focus on. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they're, they're very, um, most of them are very involved and they like to also co-invest alongside us, which is something nice. we encourage. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. And uh, it's been, we've had really good uh, relationships so far with, with those that have invested in us and, and uh, we have built a really great team. Did I see something on the uh, LinkedIn profile page about an 8% return on average or something? Where, where did I see that? Did I see that somewhere or no? For venture capital? Well, for, 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 for your, your fund in general or your performance? Maybe I didn't. I don't know. Our first fund is r- tracking at over a 50% IRR at the moment. What? Holy yes, God. it's insane. And we've also, also returned... Um, a lot of capital already just in a short period of three years from that first mm. fund to our LPs. Mm. Mm. Um, our portfolio is 
just is blowing us, blowing our minds. I mean, the, these entrepreneurs that we've invested in have just, not, for the most part, knocked it out of the park. And we're very proud of, of, of every one of them. We support them, continue to in, reinvest, and uh, we're thrilled. Now, of course, there's been a, a couple that, you know, have not su- succeeded, um, mm-hmm. which is always going to happen, and there'll be more. But uh, we right now have three unicorns in our portfolio, which isn't nice. necessarily the thing to measure yourself on, but uh, That's good. it's certainly okay. some, some measurement. And we're starting now to, to um, look at some exits, some significant exits. Very good. Uh, are you, you're continuing to look at companies, right? So anybody that's uh, listening to this show and they uh, have a startup, um, what's your, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What, what's your parameters for investing? Do they need right. to be at a certain revenue at a certain profit? What's, I guess the two part question, what are they, how do they qualify to, for you to even consider them? And then how do they make contact with you to do the pitch? Right. So we're an early stage investor and early stage means a lot of things to many people. But for us, we invest all the way from pre-seed and pre-seed is really the earliest capital in friends and family round level all the way up to series A. That's when we'll enter into the investment. All right. Then we will follow on in, into series B, series C, et cetera. Um, so we go very early. Um, do they the have sex- to be? Do they have to be post revenue, or you'll do something even pre revenue? Yeah. No. Okay. Um, right. We are we are pretty uh, deep tech and science based re- um, investors, okay. All right. and uh, with with tech with real core technology, you have to get in early. You have to really help them, and it, it, the the ramp to revenue is sometimes a little longer. Mm-hmm. But te- so it's different from. Uh, business models or, or uh, B2C okay. or applications or, or more um, software. It, it, we invest in really three main areas. One okay. is in what we call health tech, but uh, health tech is so broad. The areas we invest in are devices, um, therapeutics, and diagnostics, uh, and a few other things. But the things we don't invest in or don't look at too heavily are patient care, um, healthcare IT. Those are areas that we, we really are, don't have expertise in, but we're okay. more in the science-based investing for mm. health tech. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you looking for? Are you looking for early patents? Are you looking for early, you know, Pat, what's IP, the, what's the, yes. Yeah. Intellectual property can take many forms. Patents is, is one, one lever, which is the most common, but there's, you know, there's, we're looking for technologies that are defendable, that are um, unique. It's not just an improvement on something else that exists, okay. but something that's that's really transformative. Um, okay. And most, yes, most are on the path, especially in health tech, towards patents. The other areas that we invest in include um, green tech or clean tech, whatever you want to call it, and that encompasses um, energy, advanced materials, um, sustainability things of that nature. And that, that ranges between aerospace, space technologies, like I said, materials, battery technologies, um, solar, wind. And okay. Water. Okay. Very good. Do, do most of your deals come to you or you're hunting most of them? Well, I'm just curious. It's, it's a mix. Um, right. Myself and the, the, the other four partners 
have immense networks in their careers. Mm-hmm. They're there. We are, we've all had careers of spanning 20 to, you know, 15 to 30 years. And uh, with big corporates, with, uh, with being a founder at startups, being an investor yep. in previous roles yep. and across the world, really. But most of our networks here in the United States are really the, the strongest source of deals. They know what we do. They know what we look for. Um, and so a lot does come through those networks, but we also scout, of course, we're at events. Um, we, we do research. Um, we have a, an amazing group of, of advisors and venture partners that are out there that are very active with us. Okay. That source a lot of our deals. And, um, that's, so now, that's the, I saw that list of advisors on your website. So, okay. Yes. It's, right. they've, they've been amazing. And, um, now what's happened is that now that we've been involved with many companies, we have over 40 portfolio companies, it's the CEOs themselves are now opening up their networks ah, to their colleagues. Yes. So the, the, the mm. fantastic CEO of this company um, who have, who we respect very highly has a colleague that's also starting something. So they're, 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 they're leading those folks right to us. Because the, because yeah. the experience we've had with them. On, I just estimate, uh, you don't have to give me exact numbers, but I'm just curious. So in 2021, how many deals do you think you looked at and how many did you say yes to? I'm just curious. Yes. 2021. Well, on an annual basis, we're seeing anywhere between five to 10,000 deals that come, come across our desk. Wow. Wow. I don't even know how you process. I don't no, know how you well, process we don't, that. We anymore. don't process all of those. Obviously, some are just simply not a fit for what we invest in. So okay. a lot, a majority of those go by the wayside, not because they're not good startups or good opportunities, yeah, it's just, just not, not fitting within our wheelhouse. Um, the others, we have a weekly call, um, okay. weekly general deal flow call with all the partners and venture partners and advisors. We go through the ones that uh, we think have some, that we might have some interest in every, every week. Um, the ones that pass, the, pass through that call, we will form a due diligence team and then you know, uh, start the process of doing research and, and working with those entrepreneurs, learning about their businesses, uh, et cetera. And then it, it's, it's just a funnel that finally comes down to the ones that we really feel that not only are great investment opportunities, but also ones that where we can help, where we have not only the expertise to assess, to make sure we're making the right decision, because that's what the what our investors expect of us, mm-hmm. but also ones that we feel that we can bring value to. What's your average, uh, you know, investment into a company? What, uh, a million? Yeah. We, we, we've put uh, a small amount of 50 to $100,000 in up to 3 million. Okay. Um, so it's okay. a full range depending on the stage. Um, but now with the capital we have today, on average, we'll be putting anywhere between uh, three to five million into, into three to five million. And are you looking for a, uh, a percentage of ownership most of the time? Are you targeting a certain percentage of ownership that you want, certain number of board seats, et cetera? Right. When we lead a deal, which is probably over half of the deals that we invest in, we do typically have a, a board seat. Um, from a, from a percent ownership standpoint, we look at it differently. We look at value creation. So it really, to us, we own 1% or 10%. It's not about that. It's about, is about how we're going to turn that $1 into $10. Okay. 
Okay. So um, that's the most important thing. Valuation is the thing that really determines what percentage you're going to take. Uh, and as you know, in today's world, valuations can be a little bit out of whack. I mean, yeah, um, it's... <laughs> can be. But, you know, in, in the areas in which we invest, we um, it's less hype and more reality. Okay. And also we're, we're East Coast. Most of our investments are in the Southeast or New England. Um, we do have some in California, in Silicon Valley, um, okay. as well as across other places in the United States. But we can sense fairly early if we're competing on a, on a or bidding on a raising valuation that doesn't make sense. And I see. I see. It, it's, it's one of the key points I, we always try to coach um, early stage entrepreneurs on is that getting a very large or too large of a valuation at the early stage does not help you because it puts much, pre- much more pressure on you for that next round of funding. And you can almost, you, you can almost hurt yourself mm-hmm. by having too high of a valuation early on. That's great advice. I haven't heard that one before. Very good advice. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, let me ask you this. What in general, do you pass more often because the product uh, or, 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 or what doesn't make sense and you're not convinced about the product or do you pass more often because of the human element, the, the founders, the people involved, you meet, mm-hmm. you meet the founders, you meet the co-founders and you're like, okay, yeah, the, these guys can't work together. Usually in the beginning, we don't really, we haven't had an opportunity to get to know the founders that well. So in the beginning we assess the, the technology okay. and the market opportunity. And okay. the, the key thing that we look at is when, you, when you're a, a science or technology-based investor, the best technology doesn't always win. It, it, you know, technology is important, but if you, let's say there's a, let's say an energy efficiency technology for buildings. Mm-hmm. If you have a technology that, that uh, the value proposition is such that it saves 10% of the energy bill, eh, that's not transformative. That's not going to change anybody's life. Okay. It's a mm-hmm. step up, but it's not, it's not really going to, going to, going to, um, mm-hmm. going to transform anything. Also, just because it's the, a, a great, fantastic, interesting technology, we always ask the question, so what, who cares? You know, because the solutions out there today, are they good enough? And yes, this this could be a technology that is way better, but do the buyers care? Do they need that much of an improvement? Is it really going to save that many more lives? Mm. Um, is it really going to transform things? So, so we're very cognizant of choosing the technologies that we feel are transformative, are a zero to one proposition, um, aren't just an improvement of something that's currently out there. And so that's one of the one of the things we look at. The other thing we look at in the industrial sector, specifically when we're looking at materials or clean tech technologies, is the the value chain. Where they fit within that sector's value chain, and how are they going to enter that market? Mm-hmm. You know, do, is this a direct sales proposition? Are there distributors and partners um, that they can work through to sell? Um, are there acquirers of businesses in this area? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all things that we look at when we're um, evaluating a business. Is the most common reason for, for failure mismanagement of cash too slow to, to, to the market on something or the people implode on themselves and the, and the, the team implodes? <clears throat> I'd say it's, it's, an, it's probably equal across the board. Um, the people involved are extremely important. And uh, I did do, I did run a Techstars accelerator in the early stages of getting this fund together. And we mm-hmm. didn't cover that, but um, one of the things that Techstar is always uh, is very keen on is team, 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 because the people involved are extremely important in, in uh, making that business successful. Um, you can't escape that. And you need, you need that. Um, you can't always predict that. You know, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, nope. you, you only get to know folks to a certain level. That's but we've right. been very lucky so far. But um, the uh, the other the other areas where some startups will, will fail is again going back to where how they enter that market and sector. Where, where do they fit in the value chain? Are they positioning themselves correctly? Meaning, do they need to be the manufacturer? of this thing, or can someone else manufacture it and, and their core competency is doing this? They need to focus on their core competencies and then you know make sure they have the resources or third parties or outsource the other components of the business, mm-hmm. but they have to have a clear vision of how they enter that market and how they're gonna commercialize their technology. And um, that that is all that's very tough, especially when you're talking about new technologies. If there's not an established supply chain, you have to almost put it together yourself. And that, that's hard. But if you do that well and you execute well, then it's first of all, it's, it's a big barrier to entry for comp- competition. And once you're in, you're in. And it's going to be hard for someone else to catch up. Um, so th- that, but that's hard. That's one of the areas that a lot of startups will struggle with and, and will um, take longer than expected is, is commercialization. What, what is the key thing that you're looking for in the personality or soft skills of a founder when you meet them for dinner and you're, and you're, you're dissecting them? And I know you've hired a bunch of people. You've, I mean, you've done this a million times. Hell, you used to be a recruiter. Uh, you know, when you're sitting across the table from them, what, do you, what are you looking for from a soft skills perspective? Um, someone that listens. Um, someone that isn't defensive that understands that, look, we, we want to help. We, we're, we're here to guide and to help. We don't know everything. Um, we, we do expect that we will learn a lot from the founders, but we do know a lot about um, building a business. We know a lot about building a team. We know a lot about commercialization. And we need to have a good feeling that that founder is going to surround themselves with, with other people that can help them because there's not one founder that can do everything. Mm. Um, they're smart, brilliant people, but everybody can't do everything. Um, so we try to assess whether that person is going to be a good listener, a good learner. Um, they're going to be flexible. They're going to know what they don't know. And uh, they're going to be team players and share. Um, they, they, know, they, they have to have a good understanding that they're going to have to give up equity in their business, not only to investors, but also to co-founders and uh, to employees. Mm-hmm. And um, have a good sort of um, collaborative 
personality? You know, you really just, you nailed it right there with everything that I've ever seen, especially if you're dealing with a founder that created something or invented something or, you know, then, then they, first of all, their egos are already pretty, pretty high. Right. And when, then once they create something, then their then their ego gets even worse. And now they're like, okay, I'm the smartest guy in the room. And most of them just don't listen very well. I, I would say the majority of early stage founders, especially if they're involved with something where they created or invented a product, it's hard for them to listen. Um, and it's hard for them to give up different functional aspects of the business. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I've met with so many of them and uh, they'll ask me for advice and, and I'll just say, yeah, I got, I got one piece of advice for you. Listen more and talk less. <laughs> yes. And, and we've, uh, I, in fact, I had a meeting yesterday with one of our founders who uh, started his business here in South Carolina and now splits his time between Silicon Valley and South Carolina. He has an operation out there. When he started working with Amy, he didn't, didn't even know that he needed to set up an entity to be, to, to be invested. And he's like, oh, I need to set up a company. And so, so we have nurtured and and uh, help this entrepreneur build, start this company from the very first day of formation with an amazing technology. He's now in meetings with potential acquirers. And That's this is wonderful. just a couple years down the road and close to commercialization on one part of the platform. And this is going to be a multi-hundred million dollar exit for him in, in, in the short term because he listened and Brilliant. and he appreciated the... the uh, um, advice and nurturing that we gave him. And he's also a person um, in an underserved um, uh, background from the country mm -hmm. that he's from and the ethnicities that he's from. A lot of people wouldn't give him the time of day, wouldn't Great listen stuff. to him. Uh, we're, we're colorblind. We, we, don't, we, have the, we don't have blinders on. And we saw the opportunity and we really embraced this founder and Wow. I mean, it's going to be one of the more, uh, biggest success stories of our fund. Now, see right there, your passion really came out. See, so I know you like the numbers. I know you like the business in general, but, but especially probably as you get older, like the, the human side of making a difference in somebody's life. Like that. I can, it, that, that part feels really good. Doesn't it? It does. And I have to tell you a little story. When I first felt this was at supply base and we were, probably in, in close to getting acquired. And I was in the lobby of our office and three or four of the engineers that we had hired come back from lunch and they had, they had gotten some takeout and they walked in and you know, they were going to go eat lunch in the little kitchen we had. And, and my co-founder and I looked at each other like, wow, we have created a culture or we've created a place for these, a home for these people. And there were about right. 70 of them. And that made me feel really good that it does you know yes. we we've created not just a business and equity and all this kind of stuff but the these these employees this is their job yes. this is like yes. where they spend most of their time and we've created such an amazing um culture and atmosphere for them and that was really that's the most rewarding thing and i see that now with our portfolio companies too is as much time i can spend with each of them when they hire people and and you see a team being built and they're passionate and they're celebrating and they're, 
they're having their ups and downs and challenges, but they get through it. It's really rewarding. It really is. It really is. I think sometimes we forget about this uh, with, with the current uh, vibe uh, in social media, but really we do care about each other as human beings more than anything. Right. Like I know it's, uh, they always talk about the numbers and the math, but really at the end of the day, we are humans that want to take care of other humans. And that's Mm -hmm. what our passion is. Yeah, totally agree. I know we're almost out of time. I got uh, two more quick questions for you. You've learned a lot now, uh, right? I mean, you've had, by the way, great career. Congratulations on everything you've accomplished. Um, Really wonderful, wonderful career. Your teenagers don't quite fully understand how well you've done yet, but they will when they get a little older. Uh, but if you could call the young man coming out of Clemson, I'm guessing you were like 21 or something, probably. What what would you tell him now? If you could call that guy based on what you've learned, anything, would you say anything to him? I'd say that. And I tell this, I would tell this to anybody that you, when you, when you make a decision, whether it's a new job or making an investment, you can analyze it forever. You can put a spreadsheet together and, you know, try to try to analyze the risk out of that decision. And it's important to do. But at the end of the day, you have to have a gut feeling that this is the right thing to do. Because it, it when when you are thinking about doing something and you do, and you're and, and, and the guts telling you to do it and you don't do it, you're going to always look back and regret. Darn, what if I I wish I would have done that or I wish I would have tried to do that. If you follow your gut and it doesn't work out, you don't look back to say, I shouldn't have done that. You may, but but you're not going to have as much remorse. You're going to be like, okay, fine, great. I learned, move on. Um, so I never be in a position where you look back to say, I should have done something because I was passionate about it and I didn't do it. Mm. Or I waited too long to do it. I should have done it two years ago. That's what I would tell myself at 21. Not in my early career, but during certain periods of my career, I should have accelerated what I really ended up doing. I just didn't move fast enough. I didn't just do it. I waited and then waited. And now here I am. I'm like, gosh, I could be 10 years younger than where I am now if I had just accelerated a few of those decisions earlier on. Great advice. Last question. If you, at this stage in life, at this age, if you could put your core purpose in life into like a sentence, like if you could just define David's core purpose, let's set aside your wife and and children for a minute. Let's put them aside because that's kind of a separate special core purpose beyond your immediate family. How would you describe David's core purpose in life? That's a hard one. Um, I, well, I, I take, I go back to what, gives me the most feeling of reward. And that is knowing that I've made an impact in a young person's life and, or given them some tools to make some really good decisions. And if I can, if I can change the life of other entrepreneurs, um, I, I come from a Latino background. If I can encourage or be a role model for other Latino youth, um, that are up and coming and there's some just fantastic talent here in the United States that makes my day. That makes it all worth it. Awesome stuff, David. I really appreciate you sharing and telling us about your story on the Rider Flex podcast. Thank you. 
Thank you. I've enjoyed it.